Hello, Rebels. You're listening to a free audio-only recording of my show, Rebel Roundup. Now, if you like listening to this podcast, then you would love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our long-format TV-style shows here on The Rebel. Subscribers get access to watching my weekly show, as well as other great TV-style shows, too. It's only $8 a month to subscribe, or you can subscribe annually and get two months free. And just for podcast listeners, you can also save an extra 10% on a new premium membership by using the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com to become a member. And please leave a five-star review on this podcast and subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those reviews are a great way to support Rebel News without spending a dime. And now, enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. Welcome to Rebel Roundup, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, in which we look back at some of your very favorite commentaries from some of your very favorite Rebels from this past week. I'm your guest host, Sheila Gunreed, because I'm not sure if you can tell, but I'm not David Menzies. However, I am entrusted with his show as he continues to take a little bit of a well-deserved break after working flat out for quite literally at least the last six years. And let me tell you, I miss David just as much as the rest of you, and I cannot wait to turn the show back over to him. Not only are our rebel journalists covering the convoy for freedom to Ottawa from the ground, from the road, the way our Mocha Bezergen is... He's fully embedded in the convoy. But we even had journalists take to the sky. We were donated three spots on a helicopter very early in the morning when the convoy for freedom was leaving Calgary. My colleague Adam Sos joins me to tell me about that once-in-a-lifetime experience. Then, what happens in a Board of Health meeting when the bureaucrats lose control of the narrative completely? Delete, delete, censorship, repeat. That's exactly what happened when a father of a vaccine-injured boy actually... The young man is deceased. Well, somehow this father was allowed to tell his story. He made it past the in-person censors, I guess. But then the recorded version of the public meeting, it suddenly disappeared. And then it was reposted without the father's harrowing story of loss. Rebel reporter Tamara Ugolini joins me with that Orwellian tale. Then letters, letters, letters. We get your letters, questions, and comments all day, every day. And it never stops because unlike the mainstream media... We actually take your feedback and we'll read some of it at the end of the show. Now, I should warn you in advance, this show was recorded over the course of close to a week because we have so many journalists out in the field covering the convoy and other stories that it was pretty hard for me to pin them all down on one day. So my hair is going to change, my clothes are going to change, and I think at one point I may have even forgotten to change the backdrop. So... Bear with me, friends. Those are your Rebels. Let's round them up. The truck convoy to Ottawa is making its way across Canada. It has been through one and a half provinces and continues to grow. Many media outlets have maligned the cause of this movement 
but ultimately they're standing up for Canadian values and Canadian principles and standing against vaccine mandates. We wanted to bring you a unique perspective as this convoy makes its way through Calgary, so we're going to be taking to the skies to do just that. Like Robert Charlie, you're identified and you're going to pick up Stoney and go east, is that right? That's correct. Uh, we're just following that convoy there, so we'll uh, see where they're originating and uh, follow up. Okay, that's all approved. Just stay 4,800 or below. 48 below, Mike Robert Charlie. They're very interesting to hear about significant delays on the way in from British Columbia. Uh, questions, questions remaining as to whether the delays at weight scales were simply a matter of procedure and volume or if there were broader questions of political influence delaying at the scales. That remains to be seen, simply speculation at this point. We can see a few flashing police lights uh, down below at the protest, but again, that is very common uh, for these types of convoys, whether they be escorting them or simply maintaining the peace. Uh, not too large a police presence, certainly, however. Now, the truck convoy to Ottawa is something to behold firsthand. I saw it in Edmonton, but it looked like sparkling Christmas lights from the sky. And how do I know that? Well, my friend Adam Sos in Calgary and some members of the Calgary Rebel team took a helicopter up on Monday to get some proper visuals of the enormous convoy as it left Calgary to head east all the way to Ottawa. Joining me now is my friend Adam Sos with all the details. Adam, how on earth did you end up in a helicopter? Well, we, we graciously had, I, I have you to thank to some extent, a friend of Rebel reach out for those out there saying, how much are you spending on a helicopter? Well, lo well luckily, uh, we don't take our donations and spend it on stuff like that, but sometimes gracious supporters who have a helicopter are willing to help out. Um, so uh, Matt Hassan reached out and he offered us, he said, you know, I'm going to be flying over. Um, I've got a couple seats. Do you got a couple Rebels uh, who want to tag along? And we said, yes. Of course. Um, so it was incredible. We we were up, I think, at 4.30 a.m. to be out of the city. Um, it was dark for hours. Uh, even before the helicopter took off, it was still pitch black. We could barely see anything. Um, but uh, we took off and we headed uh, over to the location, the Flying J, which is in South Calgary, a truck stop um, and kind of travel center, um, and flew overhead and it was wild to see. It was just trucks and trucks parked. But then beyond that, there was vehicles, cars, uh, like pickup trucks beyond the semis, just parked all over along the side of the road. It was really hard to even gauge how big it was because it seemed like there was cars just layered um, for, for quite some distance. Uh, Mocha was on the ground uh, as well. Sid was out late on Sunday night. Um, there was our one part of our original plan was sort of to fly over the the convoy for a decent stretch, but um, as we know, and as they're sort of 
theorizing, um, they're opening every waste way scale along the entire trip and checking these trucks, even if they don't have loads and it's obviously senseless, and checking their logs to delay things. So vehicles were actually still arriving at 7 a.m. when they were intended to arrive last night and then depart at 7 a.m. So the convoy was still very much gathering um, at the stop, but with, with it being so dark out, all the trucks were flashing all their lights. Um, it looked almost like a big Vegas music festival or something from the skies uh, to see it was pretty incredible. Um, uh, just the, the scale of this um, and the coverage, it's incredible to, to see so many people coming together. As we talked about it on the show, we've talked about it. Um, there's been sort of fragmented, like, like you talked about Restaurant Rebellion here and uh, pastors standing in solidarity there. But this, we, we're seeing all these people come together, Pastor Arthur, Jesse Johnson without Papers Pizza, all these faces, Chris Scott from the Whistle Stop Cafe, they're all part of this. All these truckers are coming together. Um, it's the first really national movement where people are standing in unison, um, and there's nowhere better to see it from than up above to really get that eagle's eye perspective on the scale of this thing. Yeah, it's, you know, it it's about truckers, or at least that's how it first started with the cross-border vaccine mandates. But And that goes both ways. So it's going to hurt Canadian consumers both ways, both American truckers coming in and Canadian truckers taking our goods out and bringing goods back in. But it, it's really not even about that anymore. It's mm -hmm. all the support against the mandates, against the lockdown, against the coercion. It's all coalescing. Yeah. around the truckers at this point. Um, I, I know when I was out covering the truckers, when they rolled into Edmonton before they headed to Calgary, um, there were signs that saying, open up your church without restriction and uh, let us go to the gym, let us play hockey. It's, it's everything. It's anti the last 22 months. Everything that yeah. has been done to society in the last 22 months, I think that's what this is all about. Yeah, and I think I would agree. And I think one thing that speaks to your point that is a fundamental contradiction is other groups who have rallied have have often said, while very righteously and fighting for valid causes, well, my concern is just sort of like, uh, let's say, uh, healthcare workers, and we want to make sure healthcare workers are safe and continue, can continue to work. And we don't want to get bogged down in the broader conversation. Uh, we just want to focus on our, on our issue, which is, is fine. That's very important. Or yeah. uh, sports, recreation, we want to ensure the youth can play. We don't want to get into the vaccine mandate conversation broader. All we want to talk about is like getting these kids back to play. Very important, no doubt. And I, I understand from a legal perspective, narrowing and focusing on that. But this this instance is unique because it is one of those small groups and the, the start of this story was one of these, it's just about truckers and maybe we should just be talking about, they spend most of their time alone, they're isolated. It isn't very logical for them to be subjected to these standards. And then these folks, like you said, these blue collar folks say, you know what? No, it isn't just about us. Vaccine mandates are wrong fundamentally. Come after us, take our jobs, do what you can, we're tough. We, we're truckers, we can take it. And we're not just standing up for ourselves. We're saying vaccine mandates are wrong and we're rolling on Ottawa until this stops. They took it in the other direction and they thrust themselves into that broader conversation, into that mucky area that politicians and political pundits and uh, news commentators steer clear of. They said, no, we're gonna go there. 
Um, they, they can handle rough roads, ice roads, get through all that stuff. They're willing to navigate this rough terrain because they know it's the right thing to do. And it is so refreshing and so encouraging that it is while academics have failed and politicians have failed and all these uh, hoity-toity intellectuals have failed to adhere to the truth and to follow the evidence and to trust the science despite what Justin Trudeau says, those people have failed that. These truckers have been saying the narrative that is now being adopted by everyone this entire time, and they're saying enough is enough, these are the facts, we're getting in our trucks and we're gonna go make a difference. Uh, you know, I want to go back to something you mentioned right off the beginning, and that's that the DOT, the Department of Transportation and the Ministry of Transportation, they're opening their way scales at bizarre hours, checking log books, checking trucks, doing safety checks. And normally that's just, you know, something that's built into trucking. But it's at bizarre hours. These guys are not carrying loads. They're, you know, going through these trucks with a fine tooth comb and I have a conspiracy theory about this and tell me if I'm in the right direction but I think that they are breaking the convoy up so that people really can't get a sense of how big it is I think uh governments are using the weigh scales and the safety checks and the department of transportation to sort of um to make it so that it's very difficult to get a good and accurate picture yeah. of just how many trucks and truckers and their supporters are on the road at any given time. Because now, because of these delays caused by the weigh scales, it can take hours and hours and hours and even overnight for all the trucks to get into one spot. And by the tail, by the time the tail end gets there, the front end is already leaving. So, you know, for, I guess, the news media, it looks like there are not as many trucks as... We know there are because we have Mocha Bezergen embedded in the convoy. Yeah, and I think, I think to an extent that may be a factor. I think you might be smarter than them, though. Um, I don't know if they're <laughs> necessarily calculating it from an optics perspective. I think their intention at this point, this is all allegations. Sure. As responsible journalists, we are going to request this information. They're going to try yep. and keep it from us. We're going to have to take them to court. We'll get it. It'll blow the yep. whole thing open. And it'll be a misappropriation of power. Um, that's probably what's going to happen. But at this point, it's simply alleged. But I think their their ultimate intention is to disenfranchise, uh, to discourage people, to make the already arduous trek across the nation uh, that much more difficult. Um, I, I think that they're they're completely completely underestimating the resilience, the persistence, and the tenacity of these truckers. Um, when when you're doing something like this, and it seems by all measures that the government is going out of their way to make it more difficult, that's a pat on the back for truckers. Yeah, you're just telling them, "Wow, you are so effective. We need to implement." the Department of Transportation to try and impede your efforts because you're so powerful. You don't react like that if you're not scared. And I, I don't believe for a second these people are scared for their safety. I don't think anyone in Ottawa believes this is a terrorist organization. Mocha's talking to these people. They're the most lovely people. We were on the side of the road. They were all waving, cheering, shouting for Rebel News. Um, very wonderful people, lovely people, um, people you'd love to sit down and have a beer with, have a conversation with. Um, what they're afraid of 
is that this is finally the unifying symbol that's uniting Canada. So they're launching all these countermeasures to try and undermine it, but like a broken bone that heals and is stronger than ever before, these minor truck stops and impediments, one will provide ample fodder for us to report on for years and further further just prove how bad and how corrupt this government is. But two, it's proving that this is effective. We are seeing mainstream media outlets bring people from the convoy on and talk about it. And don't get me wrong, there's still the odd article mm -hmm. out there maligning them. They're still trying to make them look like extremists. The media is going to media as they do. But I think there are reporters within the agencies now, within some of these agencies, who are like, man, I really need to do some journalism. I have, a, I have an ethical responsibility. And I think that this is one of the pivotal shifting moments. And I don't think it could have been, there's a sort of providence to it. It couldn't have been more beneficially timed because this was planned. And right as it's coming to fruition, the world is starting to open up. If this does not bring enough pressure for this government to realize that they are absolutely on the wrong path, they never will. This government is absolutely ideologically entrenched and we no longer have freedom. And this government has gone that extra step where they are effectively an ideological regime. This is the pushback. This is the moment where people are standing. And it's incredible to see these polls taking place where the vast majority support them. And aside from the loudmouths on Twitter who disproportionately exercise their influence, um, I think most Canadians are saying enough is enough. When I talk to people, I'll even talk to people online or maybe in forums where they don't even know who I am. And the responses are near universal. I don't talk to people who condemn them. At the very least, People may be like, well, I'm not really following it too closely, but good for them for standing up for themselves. Most people are like, I support them. They're doing the right thing. And this is about time that Canada had a movement like this standing in solidarity. You know, I think you're right. I think this is the right moment in the right time. Um, I don't think that this could have happened as effectively sooner. I think this is the breaking point yep. and good for the truckers, good for their supporters and good for them in the face of the uh, lies and libel and maligning that's going mm -hmm. to come their way and that has already started to come their way. It's reaching a fever pitch. Adam, thanks so much for your coverage of this very important story. I can't wait to see what happens when they get to Ottawa. It's going to be incredible. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm Tamara Ugolini pointing out some fishy actions by the Toronto Board of Health a mere day and a half after the interview that I conducted with unofficial COVID data analyst Kelly Brown. We at the time discussed the presentation that he delivered to the Toronto Board of Health on January the 17th, and then we linked back to the fully public live streamed video. And on Friday, January 21st, I tried to go back to that publicly available live stream source to get some additional content. But when I tried to do that, I was shocked to find that the board had privatized the video. In usual times, which obviously these are not, you would be able to find the full live streamed and public video on the City of Toronto Council and Committees meetings, agenda, and minutes website. But the video is privatized and we'll show this screen grab that we got on screen now to prove it. And it appears that sometime thereafter, the video was 
magically republished under the Board of Health's video archive, but with at least one key speech missing. It was the speech of Dan Hartman, who runs a Twitter page called Answers for Sean, where he claims that the 17, his 17-year-old son died a mere few weeks after his first Pfizer injection. Look at the formal public record of his speech. Dan, welcome. Uh, you'll have five minutes. Thank you for joining us, and you can begin when you're ready. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Um, um, thank you very much, Mr. Hartman. Thank you. I hope that you and your family are able to find some closure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Counselor. His entire speech and the dialogue that ensued, it's gone completely. Counselor Wong Tam engaged with him a little bit and they had a conversation. And so is the way in which Joe Cressy, he's the chair for the Board of Health, responded to Dan's heartbreaking allegation. Cressy was heartless and cold, not even attempting to acknowledge the tearful account by Sean's dad. He glossed over the horrific allegation entirely. I know because I watched it live, but it's a clip that we can no longer view thanks to whomever decided to scrub the speech from the public record. Here is one clip that made it onto social media of Dan's speech. It's not the complete clip. And again, I know because I listened to it live, but it's better than the absolute nothing that we're left with from the Board of Health's public record. Have a listen. All over his neck and face and brown circles around his eyes. They sent him home. And on the morning of September 27th, his mother found him dead on the floor beside his bed. And all he wanted to do was play hockey. So I'm just wondering really how safe this is and why no deaths are being reported. You're talking about numbers and ICUs, but nobody ever talks about deaths. And it is happening more than anyone knows. And it's just being denied and silenced. And I have a Twitter page called Answers for Sean, which has 7,500 followers who are all wondering the same thing as me. What happened to my son? He had an autopsy done in Toronto. That came back, cause of death unascertained, which only 2% of deaths have that conclusion. The only thing they found was a slightly enlarged heart. So I questioned the coroner, well, is that not caused from the vaccine causing myocarditis? They're saying there was no myocarditis. I sent his autopsy report to a second well-known pathologist in Canada who wants to remain anonymous for fear of losing his job. He told me the vaccine did kill my son. I don't know who I can believe anymore. I have to go the rest of my life either thinking there's no cause of death or it was the vaccine. I just don't think vaccines for kids to play sports is the right thing to do, considering Omicron is a lot less powerful than Delta. My brother and his wife and three kids all have Omicron right now, and they're all perfectly fine. They say it's not bad at all. Even one of my nephews has no symptoms whatsoever, but tested positive. I just would like some answers to why my son is gone. And if you want to take a look at my page, you'll see just how much of a special boy he was and what he meant to me. 
And now I have to go through the rest of my life with this pain. And I just want answers. Politicians and public health bureaucrats are quickly losing their stranglehold on the COVID-19 narrative. And sometimes that loss of control happens in real time in front of a live studio audience, for lack of a better term. So what's a politician to do when this stuff happens? Well, you just gaslight everybody, pretend they're hard of remembering, and pretend like it never happened. You just wash it from the official record. That's what happened in a meeting of the Toronto Board of Health. Although the politicians and the public health bureaucrats tried to memory hole the testimony of a father with a now deceased vaccine injured child by cropping it from the public record, rebel reporter Tamara Ugolini watched his testimony firsthand and then she saw it disappear. Tamara joins us now. Tamara, I watched your story and I thought, how many other times across the country has this happened that we didn't have a reporter sitting in on the meeting to notice? That's That was exactly my thoughts. And originally I had, I think I mentioned in the report, I had gone back to source that live streamed fully public record of that original uh, board hearing to, to pull some other content for a separate report. And I was shocked when it said that it was privatized. And I was kind of going through my head and, and racking my brain and, and referencing some of my notes, wondering what was the nail in the coffin for them that had them pull and privatize the content. And it was funny because I actually hadn't even considered Dan Hartman's uh, deputation at that time. I, I didn't think that it was something that needed to be scrubbed. And then lo and behold, a few hours later, when they republished the report, um, a, a few individuals who had also taken part in that hearing, they were actually the first ones to point out that his deputation is entirely cut. And then he and Councillor Wong Tam, who you see at the very end, thank him and, uh, and and give her basically her sympathies about the heartbreaking story that he recounted about his son's tragic death. The dialogue that they had together was gone completely. And so all that's left is basically, you know, going back into your memory bank and trying to remember what was said and and the exact allegations um, th this is crazy. And yes, absolutely. It makes me wonder across the country, as you said, how many other times has this happened either on the municipal, provincial or the federal level? Yeah, that's the thing. These meetings are the public record. They are the public record of what was said and what was done. And they are recorded so that the public can hold their politicians to account. And it's something that holds up the value of transparency that we have in the Western world. In places like China and North Korea, Venezuela, um, that's where they decide what you can and can't say in a meeting. And if you slip into the meeting and actually say something, then they do. Well, sometimes they disappear you, but they definitely disappear your comments too. It's eerie to see it happening in Toronto of all places. And the gall with which the, these people do this. There were thousands of people watching that meeting. Thousands. And they think that none of you are going to be aware of what they're doing. I just, it's so audacious. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that it works actually in the favor of sometimes the dissidents because it's it's right in your face. Hey, why would they... They have nothing to hide and they're being so forthcoming with all the information and giving people true informed consent. Well, then why would they do something like that? 
why, what was the point of scrubbing that testimony from the public record if there's nothing to hide? It just further shows that these these bureaucrats are making these closed door decisions. They're not pro properly informing the public. And I mean, point blank, they're hiding something and they're hiding the, you know, in Dan's testimony that I, again, listened to live, he specifically asked them, why aren't you reporting any of the deaths? And of course, no one had any answers and we still don't have any answers. Um, so it just lends to the fact that there is something to hide here. And, and who's the other thing is who's making this decision and why? So that's part of why I filed that freedom of information request because I wanted, at the time, I didn't know yet what, what had been scrubbed. So I wanted to find out what had been scrubbed and if we could gain access to the full um, live streamed video once again. But whose decision was it and why? Because as we know, uh, the Toronto Board of Health and Toronto Public Health, and that is overseen by Dr. Eileen Davila, she doesn't take questions or, or garner responses to Rebel News. So I knew that that was a dead end, but worth reaching out anyway. You know, that's a very interesting point. Not only are these people secretive, they are doing the, uh, like, it's very Orwellian what they're doing. They're taking something that happened in reality and just disappearing it because it doesn't fit their narrative. It is like going back and rewriting history um, from 1984. But they also reject any form of accountability journalism. There's a reason why they take questions from the CBC and they answer CBC's media inquiries and they don't answer yours is because you're trying to hold them to account for the dastardly deeds that they're doing. It, it makes me wonder you know, when you say, or when, you know, the father of this vaccine injured child says, why aren't you reporting the deaths? Who's to say that somebody has not reported these deaths? And then they were just, like his testimony, disappeared from the public record altogether. If they're doing this with testimony that happens in public in front of thousands of people, what are they doing with the numbers that come in on their email? How are they playing fast and loose with those two? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, and I'm not sure how the reporting works in Alberta, but I know that here in Ontario, for instance, the, the publicly available data, um, you're, the definition of unvaccinated is if you're within the first two weeks of your vaccine. And so those that's the textbook time frame to actually have an adverse reaction, which could, in this instance, be death. Um, that wasn't the case here with this particular this particular boy. Uh, who is 17, healthy, athletic, young male. But um, if there's a textbook vaccine reaction, which could include death, then that person is marked as actually being unvaccinated because they're within that first two weeks post-vaccination. So the, it's really fishy, all of these, these little discrepancies that people don't realize um, hinder or um, skew that, those reports. And I mean, I'm just here trying to make sense of it, piece this puzzle together. But I think this is a pretty clear instance where people are, are you know, who maybe were on the fence before or didn't realize what was maybe going on are saying, whoa, hold on a minute. What is this about? Yeah. And I, I know you have a tight timeline, so this will be my last question to you or my last comment. And then you can comment, too. You know, what an insult to this family that, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're trying to warn other families or at least get answers for themselves. They sort of want to make sure that their son just didn't die in vain, that maybe another family needs this information too. 
And yet they are now being treated like they don't exist. What a final insult to this already grieving family. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I haven't put it on the record yet, but the, the father, Dan Hartman, and I are in communication together. And one thing, one part of his testimony that didn't make it into that very small social cut that was posted onto social media before they scrubbed the record was the fact that he's had, he has the coroner's report. So he has the autopsy report. And then he had it interpreted by another um pathologist who refuses to go on the record of course they they fear you know they want to remain anonymous because the state of affairs in Canada he doesn't want to want to risk uh, employment or or his reputation so he off the record gate interpreted this report uh, to this dad Dan Hartman and uh, so we're trying to see if we can even get a third opinion for this dad and and substantiate what those the two differing opinions might have been and if there's maybe some the truth is somewhere in the middle because yeah at the end of the day I mean his Twitter page is answers for Sean he just wants to know so that he can continue to to grieve and have some closure in this situation Tamara, I want to thank you so much for staying on this story. Um, it seems as though the mainstream media doesn't care about these sorts of families where, the, you know, they're just, tr- like you say, trying to get answers. They want to know what happened. They don't want this to happen to another family. And they want someone to listen to them. And they're not even getting that out of our unaccountable public health bureaucrats. Um, best of luck on that access to information request. You know I love access to information requests. Um, I'm sure it will be interesting when we get those communications back. Tamara, have a great weekend. Thanks, Sheila. You as well. Now, even more additional barriers have been have been placed on us, such as masks and social distancing. I mean... These policies interfere and disregard people such as myself who rely heavily on ASL, which is 70% facial. So before the pandemic, yeah, things were bad, but now it's magnified. The definition of a barrier is um, anything that prevents a person with a disability from fully participating in all aspects of society. So... I guess you can imagine I'm not fully participating in society and neither are all my deaf friends. The deaf and hard of hearing, well, their public communication has been hindered by the lack of facial cues, the inability to use touch and lip reading to communicate. And then of course, the use of plexiglass further muffles the sound even further. I haven't had my hearing tested, but even I struggle to understand people who are speaking to me in a mask, especially when there is an additional barrier between us of plexiglass. So I can just even imagine how hard it must be for someone who actually can't hear. As I said off the top of the show, we allow your viewer feedback here, unlike the increasingly feedback-averse mainstream media who are just so happy to take your bailout bucks, but they don't want to hear your opinion that might go along with your dollars. But that's not the case here, so let's get to what you had to say. On Tamara's story about how the deaf community has been harmed by mask mandates, exoskeletal on Rumble writes, I'm not deaf, but this is one of the first things I thought about and said to my wife. Poor deaf people, they silenced the world for them. Yeah, hypochondriacs and those fear-addicted anxiety junkies are the ones running the show now, and they don't seem to care who they harm along the way as long as they get 
their fix. Why did you come to support the truckers? Because we have to do it for our children. We have to do it for the, just for our country, period. For our children. So they're standing up for our children, so we'll stand up for them. Because they're the only ones standing up for our freedoms. My father-in-law's a trucker, my stepfather's a trucker, and I, I appreciate all that they do. We and want our BS. country back. We want our country back. On my story about the truckers being sent off by 2,000 well-wishers in Edmonton, Urge Bewoner on Rumble writes, Even when a cart pusher of a supermarket refuses the jab, he or she has my support. Nobody should be pressured or bribed into a jab. That's why I think this is no longer about the truckers anymore, and it hasn't been for a long time. People are coalescing around the truckers because they are the ones, coast to coast to coast, who are standing up and uniting people for their cause. They're giving a voice to those, vaccinated and unvaccinated alike, who oppose government coercion. We received this story through an anonymous tip to the Rebel News tip line, which anyone can email at tips at rebelnews.com. The sender of the email outlines a new crash course taking place at Trent University, which is based in Peterborough, Ontario, called literally just Black Lives Matter. The creator of this content is Associate Professor Charmaine Eddy, whose last documented salary from 2019 was just shy of $140,000 a year. She has a pretty mediocre rating on Rate My Professor of 3.2 stars out of 5. Looks like 0% of students would take her course again. Her most recent review calls her awful and notes that in the course they took, it was all about Black Lives Matter or BLM and had nothing to do with English literature. And on Tamara's story about the white professor making a hundred and a half thousand bucks per year to teach a BLM course, La Toron on Rumble writes, Why spend 10k for a university course about white people hating white people if you've got free access to Twitter? Yeah, that's so true. It's hard to believe the Twitter app is free some days. It's like a trip to the zoo sometimes with all the exotic weirdness that I would never encounter in my normal life, which is full of normal, productive people doing normal, productive things, unlike Twitter. Well, everybody, that's the show for this week. Thank you for all your notes and messages of concern and kindness about David. He'll be back very soon. I cannot do his show forever. Thanks to the team in Rebel HQ for putting this thing together once again. Thanks to my pal David for putting his roundup baby in my hands for the last little bit. Thanks all of you for tuning in. And as David says, without risk, there can be no glory.